Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. My name is Raphael Rowe. When I smoked weed, I don't anymore, it was illegal. Now, in many countries, it's being decriminalised or legalised. In some American states, the cannabis trade is generating millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars for the companies licensed by government officials. My guest today is not one of them. Evelyn LaChapelle is at the other end of the industry and went to prison for laundering cannabis profits for a cannabis trafficker. Maybe today he wouldn't be called that. Evelyn, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Let me me start by just asking you this. How would you describe yourself today? I don't mean I've just got out of bed and my hair's not done, but how would you describe yourself if you're on a platform telling people who you are? Free. That that is sort of, and not just freedom in the sense of not being incarcerated anymore, but um, I think approaching two years from being home, I'm just now sort of embracing what that is. I've just moved into my own space. I've just become a little financially independent and all of that. I'm waking up feeling like extra free. Free is a really important word, isn't it? Because it comes in different shapes and sizes. Well, let's get to it then. I mean, in terms of you talking about being free, what happened that that took your liberty? Take me back to the moment where you lost your liberty and what happened. I've read bits and pieces, but I'd like to hear it directly from you. Absolutely. Well, the date my liberty was taken was October the 18th. And that is when a jury came back and had convicted me of three crimes that I had went to trial and pled not guilty to. And all of those three crimes summed up to one incident of depositing cannabis profits into my bank account. Um, And I was charged with a conspiracy to distribute with the intent to sell 
uh, marijuana conspiracy to money laundering for those um, illegal funds and then structuring financial transactions to avoid the IRS. All of that because I deposited cannabis profits into my account back in 2009. I was taken into custody and I was given 80, I was sentenced to 87 months in prison for that. 87 months is seven years and three months. That's what the sentence was, seven years, three months. That's what 87 months worked out. And how long of that time did you actually serve in prison? So I served five years, three months. I got a year off for good behavior because I'm really no criminal. And I got another year off for completing RDAP, the residential drug program that's in the institution, because if you are selling cannabis and if you smoke cannabis, then you also must be addicted to cannabis. And so that qualified me for a drug program, drug treatment program that gave me a year off my sentence. So were you smoking cannabis? Were you addicted to cannabis? I will never say that I was addicted to cannabis, but I definitely have consumed cannabis since college, since I was like 19. Who hasn't? And, and if they haven't, then that's a crime within right. itself. <laughs> what what led to you getting arrested and, and placed in the dock? You know, fire back at me your answers. But were you a drug trafficker? Were you caught up in a, 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 a gang or a crew or a bunch of people who were involved in the cannabis, the illegal cannabis trade where you're from? I almost wish that I were, because then you could expect the consequences that were coming your way. But no, what sort of, and I try not to use any of this as an excuse, but what was surrounding sort of my involvement in this conspiracy? Um, I was third year university. I was living in Southern California, really without like any family. All my family was almost 400 miles away. And I was involved in an extremely toxic relationship. And at this point, expecting my daughter. So I just found out that I was pregnant. I wasn't strapped for cash, though. My grandfather had set up a trust fund for us. And so my college bills, all of that was paid for. Plus, I was working a job. And so I wasn't strapped for cash. And so when the opportunity came for me and a friend asked me, I got cannabis money coming from North Carolina. We're paying Western Union X amount of dollars every time I need to get my money. Can I just put it in your bank account and you can get the money that Western Union is getting? Um, when I said yes, it wasn't because I needed the money. It was just because this was a really good friend and um, had stepped up to the plate during that pregnancy. And so for me, it was like companionship, right? Like he was the guy who deposited illegal funds into my account, but he was also the guy that was bringing me flowers to my job every day, lunch every day, doctor's appointments, et cetera. And he wasn't the father of my child. And so um, for me, it was companion. Like it was this friendship that I was fostering, not a criminal lifestyle that I was fostering. And it lasted for nine months until until literally from like pregnancy nine months and then I have my daughter and I was like okay I'm going to move on and I'm going to try and make my toxic relationship work with her father and so I cut all ties and and moved on and hadn't heard from from that friend or hadn't heard about this conspiracy until four years later. 
what what sort of money are we talking about? Was it large amounts of money? Um, for me, it was two hundred bucks a transaction, which not a lot. The number of transactions, I think, once I've done the math, I would have made like thirteen thousand, thirteen fourteen thousand. I was charged with one point three million because of the entire conspiracy, but I think uh, what had actually ran through my account was something like 700,000. And this companion, was his motive dual? And when I say that, I mean, was there this desire for you, but also this kind of use of you? I mean, how did it kind of pan out when when you split? Was it because you realised that you were being used or because his wooing of you with the flowers was not as genuine as it first seemed? That is still out for the verdict, right? Like I have my assumptions on what that was, but when I cut ties, it had nothing to do with him. And it was just my desire to, and I ended up marrying my child's father. So it was really my desire to uh, move on and further that relationship. I'd like to believe that uh, Corvain's intentions when he deposited through the funds into my account were not to use me. It's sort of hard to to believe that though, right? Like it's both, but I continue my friendship with him. He's serving life. He got life for this conspiracy. Um, And it was all cannabis, no guns, no other drugs. And so um, he's serving life. And so I continue to, you know, foster that relationship now that I'm home. Um, But his intentions will have to ask him when he gets home. A life sentence just for the importation and distribution of cannabis. Yes. That's harsh. Is it because he had previous convictions or a history? His his that's the saddest part is he did receive the life sentence because of his two previous convictions. And so it led to a third strike. Um, but those two previous convictions were also for marijuana and they were less than two pounds. And so when California legalized cannabis, um, we were already incarcerated. They had, Cal- let me say, California had already legalized and had legalized to come some capacity, even while this illegal conspiracy was happening. Um, but they passed a law, I think in 2016, that um, decriminalized cannabis. And so people who had previous com- felony convictions, all of those had been uh, struck down to misdemeanors. So the two things, uh, the two priors that he had that got him the life sentence are no longer on his record. And the appeals court has refused to reopen the case and at least resentenced him because he should now only be sentenced as a first time offender. But they have um, refused to do so. So you were convicted and you were sentenced to 87 months in prison. What kind of prison did you go into? And, and, and what was it like once you, I mean, once you were on trial, etc. cetera, you, your expectations maybe being convicted of going to prison was, was a reality. Do you have any previous convictions? Was a prison sentence inevitable because, you know, Evelyn was a career criminal? I mean, no. you, you mentioned going to college. I had no, no previous convictions and, and really um, walking into court with like my college degree. I had already started my career in hospitality at a major uh, hotel chain. I had been married and now divorced. 
it started out as a toxic relationship. And um, I had moved back home uh, with my mom. And so honestly, being naive and then having just sort of this ego about my education and my status, I didn't think that they would convict me. And it wasn't in my head or in my attorney's head uh, a sure thing. Otherwise, I probably would not have gone to trial. I learned later that nobody wins in trial against the feds, but there was three of us that went to trial together and we all lost. And then it's inevitable. So I had really walked into trial thinking that I was coming home. And once the jury said guilty, they took us into custody. That was devastating. Like if if I could go back to that and put myself like in that space, it was like so much going on. Like not, I'm going to jail. Uh, my mom and my sister is in, you know, in the courtroom, so I can sort of hear them gasping for air. I, I don't think I ever turned around and looked at them, but I can hear my mom cry. And then I'm just taken into a back room and I'm dressed for court. So I have on my high heels, a skirt suit, my jury. They remove my jury, put us all in handcuffs. And then the marshals usher us outside to like put us in the back of a van to take us to the county jail. And I remember asking the marshals, like, I'm afraid, like, am I going to be okay? <laughs> um, am I going to get in here and get beat up? Like, I don't, you know, I don't have a, a plan. And he's like, you'll be fine. And I get to the county. And at that time, now I've had time to process what sort of happened. So I'm like hysterical. Um, with tears and just can't catch my breath. And because of that, they placed me on suicide watch. And so my first night in the county jail was on suicide watch, which is like the worst experience that I've had during the entire five years, right? Like they make you strip of your clothes. They put you in a, a, a green, like padded best to sleep in it's cold they put you in a normal cell but they've stripped it of everything so you have um no pad on your metal bunk right so it's like a a metal bed frame but with no pad on it you just lay on the metal um and I learned how to control my emotions after that like that was pivotal right like there would be no more tears for me after that because I would avoid suicide watch at all cost um I learned that first day that you cry you're going to suicide watch so um I don't think I've cried about it since how old was your daughter at the time you were sentenced it was four and that's what the tears were about who looked after her while you were in prison? Um, my mother and my stepmother um, sort of shared. So she was four at the time. She was in preschool. So my mom would do a week. My stepmom would do other week. And then in 2015, 13, 14, 15, uh, two and a half years into my sentence, um, I lost my stepmother. And so then my mom had her. What was it like when she came to visit you because she was old enough to almost understand the bars and the the suits and the guards? What was it like seeing her for the first time? So I didn't get to see her for the first two and a half years because I was in North Carolina. And in North Carolina, besides the travel cost of traveling across the country, they only allowed for 30 minute visits behind glass once a week. So if they were going to bring her, it would only be, she'd only see me one time, 30 minutes behind glass. 
And that just wasn't going to work for a four-year-old or a five-year-old. And, um, but we were able to talk every day. And if anyone's ever talked to a toddler, it's, it's not easy. Um, but I remember the conversations of her like crying, like, I just can't come home. When are you going to come home? And me still hoping that once I get sentenced, it's going to be time served and I'll be home. So for me, it was almost, I'll be home as soon as I can. I'm at a place where I can't leave. Um, and then they sentenced me and that was in May of 2015. And then they shipped me to uh, Victorville Federal Prison Camp, which is in Southern California, at least. And I got there in July and I was able to see her for the first time in August. Her great grandmother brought her. And when she came, I didn't think she would recognize me. I hadn't seen her in, you know, two and a half years. And so she's six at the time. And she just came and she just jumped in my arms. And looking back on even that, like when she left, the visit was a couple hours. We're able to sit at the table, play some games, vending machines. It's much more family oriented at the the prison camps. Um, But even when she left, she didn't cry. And I didn't cry to not cry in front of her. Um, and not make it, you know, harder than it needed to be. But her grandmother told me that on the way home, she had to pull over on the side of the freeway because my daughter had just sort of really had a meltdown. And of course, I was having a meltdown in the jail cell. But again, realizing that even my daughter has had to learn how to control her emotions to protect me the same way that I, you know, was doing to protect her at six, she learned that. How old is she now? She's 11. And has that time damaged your relationship in any way, made it stronger? I would say that that is still to be determined. I have a hard time believing that it hasn't damaged it. Um, I think that because we just moved into our new place, we've been here for like a month, that it's probably finally starting to sort of shape into what mother-daughter relationship should be because while I was incarcerated I was you know the mommy that she's seen maybe six times a month that had vending machine snacks and card games to play and then I came home and I'm the mom who get your homework done brush take a bath you know so there's like that extreme disconnect from who she expected me to be um, as a mom. Um, and so I, I definitely think there's some therapy that needs to happen that hasn't happened, but we are managing with smiles on our face. And I suppose it's it's difficult because you've been out less than two years. Tell me what it was like in prison for you, how you managed to cope. Somebody who doesn't have that criminal mindset, if you like, what was it like for you, the reality? I experienced sort of both hands. So the first two years, because I was in a county jail, you really experienced the crazies. And I've seen someone get slapped out of a chair over a piece of chicken. like, And so sort of being on edge with that and... I don't know that I've ever said this publicly, but my strategy going into the county jail, I just hung out with like the big studs, right? Like the the, the women who like now we're best friends and I don't have any problems here. Um, and that was my strategy in the county jail and it worked and I got out safely. Um, and then when I got to the federal prison camp, um, I was in prison with like really old women 
who had, you know, done some sort of white collar crime. There was like no harsh, I may be seen like one or two fights. Um, but for the most part, we I learned how to crochet. I learned, <laughs> I learned how to, um, I'm a master of ceramics now. Um, yoga, like, like prison camp in a sense is extremely condescending because you're like, why am I here? I, I practiced yoga today. I did three miles on the track today and I'm going to go crochet a blanket today. So, you know, it's, it's almost like a house. It's a nursing home. Um, and we shouldn't be there. It's like, if, if you trust me to, to walk freely around the camp in the camp, there was, you had to work, you had to have a job. And some of those jobs where I could be a driver, where I would be driving um, officers to the airport or driving to pick up inmate transfers or driving inmates to their doctor's appointment, all off of the prison camp. And so it's like, we were the lowest level of security. Why are we even here? What what would you say it changed about you? What are the things that it the person it turned you into as opposed to the person you were? Um, it's definitely an attack on your self esteem in prison. Um, I became extremely like detached, um, and I continue to be detached, and it continues to be a struggle in my life because of it. Um, I don't have any emotions. I learned very early on because of Suicide Watch to really cut off um, from the emotional impact that all of this was having. And that allowed me to crochet freely with a smile on my face. But returning home and needing to process and grieve what I've experienced. Like I I did lose five years with my daughter. Um, And in order to grieve that, you will have had to have some sort of emotional attachment. And and it changed that about me. Um, I've always really been uh, like a free spirit, like go with the wind, wherever the wind takes you. And it took me to prison. So I no longer follow the wind. So when I say that I feel free today, right? Like I'm feeling freedom. It's sort of me going back to that feeling pre-prison where I just felt like in charge of my life and prison for a while. And up until now, up until sort of moving into that space that I did not feel in control of my life at all. And yeah, it, it def- and that's how it changed me. Did you accept responsibility for for your sentence and uh, and being you know locked up in prison you accept all that do you yes and and that is where my shift in thoughts have started to happen for me because in prison I absolutely have accepted uh and taken accountability for my actions so far that it was, I, you know, you ruined your daughter's life. You ruined your life. You know, how stupid could you be? Like, I really just uh, beat myself up the entire time. And then my stepmother died. And to not be at her bedside when that happened because of the choices that I had made and for her to die while I was in prison, like the thought of, of the thought of her passing on and knowing that I was in prison there's no, I don't think that there'll ever be anything else that could break me down um, the way that that did. And, and so I really internalized the, the bad parts of this. 
And then I was in the TV room watching TV one night and the news comes on and these two white ladies jump on the screen to tell us about the cannabis, uh, Beverly Hills Cannabis Club and businesses booming. And I'm in prison for the same cannabis, right? And so then like a little anger and then I'm released and I've taken accountability. I've served my time. Um, I'm here to repair all of the wrongs that I've made and I'm ready to go back to work and get to work at repairing that. And thank goodness that this is all behind me. And then I'm hired at the Omni Hotel doing exactly what I was doing prior to um, going into prison. I'm a sales and catering coordinator. I was building my career in the hospitality industry. And who, thank goodness, this was all behind me. I am moving forward. And then someone Googles my name, take it to HR, and they ask me to pack up my belongings and leave the same day um, because of this conviction. So they Googled your name, discovered that you'd been convicted and sent to prison. Did you not have to declare that to your employees before you, you went to work at the hotel? So there's there's two things that happened that would have got me hired um, prior. So Obama took it off of the application. So no longer are they allowed to put on the application, which was supposed to allow for a Fair Chance Act, which would allow us to at least get an interview as a felon. Um, And so I am interviewed and given the job. And the first day of the job, however, there is an involuntary or there's a voluntary survey that you can complete, which I had no problem completing. It was a tax survey. And on that survey, they asked you for, you know, for tax purposes, are you a veteran? Are you disabled? Are you a felon? If yes, were you incarcerated? Um, If yes, for how long were you incarcerated? Are you currently on probation? So I answered all of those questions. This was on my first day there. I answer all of those questions truthfully. But of course, that's a voluntary survey that goes to like a third party so that they can process tax. Um, And so, and they completed a background check on me. And because of either the length of the conviction or how old the conviction was, it didn't show up on any of the four background checks. But because ICE had published an article on Google, um, they felt that that was enough grounds to dismiss me. And what was the motive of the person who took that Google search to the boss? You look with a side eye to say... They were being vindictive. Obviously, they wanted you out and they knew this was, was a way. I, I, I've got three different possible motives. When it was brought to my attention, HR said, the person who brought it to me, I don't think that they did it with malice. And so I either think it was someone that was looking for me on social media. I mean, I've never gone to work and Googled anybody's name, but... If maybe they wanted to look up my Instagram or my Facebook, they type my name in because I didn't have social media at the time. So you wouldn't have found me on social media, but maybe this article would have popped up. Um, It could have been a man that I worked with that just wanted to browse some pictures. I like, I don't know. And then I was like the only black lady there and I'm just fancy by nature. And so I show up, 
I show up to work like, you know, really fancy. And then so it could have just been someone who didn't like me. Let's move it on a bit then, Evelyn. So what happened as a result of this person taking this information to your bosses? I was asked to pack up my belongings. I was placed on administrative leave for two weeks before they decided to terminate me. How did you feel about that? That was crushing. And not so much like the loss of income, but the fact that I had served my time Um, I had come home prepared. Uh, Re-entry for inmates is a real thing. And they they talk about it a lot in prison as you're preparing to go home. I did not ever think that re-entry would be a problem for me. I had a strong support system at home. I had a resume. I had a college education. I'm not really a criminal, you know, like when I compare myself and I shouldn't, but it made me realize that Men who come home from prison, who may have tattoos, who may have, you know, served, you know, one or two more felonies. My situation compared to them, I thought this would be a breeze, but it wasn't. And uh, it definitely was a hit to just um, what I thought life was going to be like. Because after that, I just went to be a waitress and I was a waitress up until COVID hit um, because, I could waitress. And, and so does that mean I'm going to be waitressing the rest of my life? Like, like all of that, it, it was like society was not going to let me rebuild. It was not going to let me pick up where I left off. And it was, it was not going to let me forget that I had been in prison. Um, yeah, it, it was a hit. It was definitely a hit to my self-esteem. Well, you lost your job and then you're just sort of existing, working as a waitress, bringing in an income. But your life took a a bit of a twist and a turn, didn't it? Especially where cannabis is concerned. You served time in prison and then things changed. Talk me through what happened. Yeah, so it was right around that time that I was introduced to Last Prisoner Project because of Core Vancouver, the one that's serving life. He had already been in contact with them and they're advocating for his release And so it was like, oh, there's someone who is home already who just served time. So we scheduled an interview. I sat down with Steve D'Angelo pre-COVID days where we could sit in person and do an interview. Um, So it was, you know, it was very much so like what you and I are doing right now. And we sat down to record an interview so that they could use it to sort of, you know, push their, their movement forward. What is their movement? For those who don't know what the last project is, what is the last project? So the last prisoner project is dedicated to the release of the 40,000 Americans who are still serving time for cannabis. Um, More than half of our country has legalized it to some extent. Uh, The MORE Act just passed in the House of Representatives, and we still have people serving uh, life sentences or lengthy sentences for uh, cannabis, which was just deemed essential business during a global pandemic. And so that introduction to Last Prisoner Project and getting on their advisory board and sort of being an ambassador and a spokesperson and being able to share my story, I completely take accountability for my actions. And I hate the word victim, but being involved in this uh, movement and this this great organization, it has made me more aware that I suffered an unjust system, right? And so all of that beating up that I did, I 
some of that responsibility is not on me. Some of that responsibility is that our government and our justice system unjustly uh, targets Black people, brown people are four times more likely to be incarcerated for the plant that is used equally amongst white and Black people. So we're four times more likely to be arrested for it, more likely to receive criminal charges for it. And learning all of that is part of the freedom that I'm experiencing, um, being able to take some of that burden off of my shoulders. What What is the Last Prisoners Project motive? Because you and other people under the, the law committed a crime and were sent to prison or are still serving time in, in prison. But because the laws have changed around the legalization of cannabis, how does that impact on people like you, Evelyn, and your co-defendants and other people that are in prison for, for cannabis crimes? And and that is what Last Prisoners Project mission is. It, it is. it has nothing to do with how the justice system discriminates, but it has everything to do with If you're going to legalize it, then you need to decriminalize it, right? Because while we sit in prison for it, the majority of legal cannabis billions of dollars being made are by white men, white men executives who have come in and and the restrictions around even being in the legal industry is, you know, ridiculous. Um, The money that's required um, the capital that's needed that that we don't have access to. And Steve D'Angelo, the founder, said that the Last Person Project really came about because he was sitting in a board meeting, he said, and we're we're discussing, he was like millions of dollars and we're discussing kilos and we're discussing like real amounts of weed being sold. And he got a call from a buddy that was still serving time in prison for cannabis. So he said, I stepped out like normal, took the call. And then he was like, when I hung up the call, I realized that this is not right. Like I shouldn't on one end be talking to someone in prison serving time for cannabis and then walk into a room with people who are investing millions in cannabis. What's the difference, though? I'm, I'm trying to get my head around the, the difference, because if you've got a street drug dealer or importer or trafficker who's doing it against the law, but there is no law against the importation of cannabis, or is there? Is there a, a kind of fine line, Evelyn, where you have to do it in a certain way in order for it to be legal if you sell it as lumps of you know, uh, weed or or ash, then it's illegal. Is there a difference? Between you and I and between the ones who are in the know, there is no difference. It's the same plant. The same plant usually is being supplied from the same supplier. Like it's not like, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's weed. So it's all coming from the same, you know, the same fields. Um, But the, the fine line really has come down to color, you know, as, as a black person, I don't have access to $3 million to get a cannabis company off the ground. And that is sort of what it costs. You have to, in order to even apply for application, you have to already be leasing the property for it. So, you know, 5,000 a month for a lease and your application process could take three years. Um, 
And and so the fine line between who's doing it illegally and who's doing it legally, that line is who has access to that amount of capital. And that was a systematic decision, right? Like when they legalized cannabis, they knew who they were excluding when they made those the the expectations around getting a license. They knew exactly who they were excluding from from the industry. And the MORE Act just passed. The MORE Act would federally legalize cannabis and it would decriminalize it. So the people who are in prison would be pardoned and expunged. But it add, they added an amendment that would not allow for people with federal marijuana convictions to participate in the legal industry. How does the, the decriminalization and the legalization work? So if it's decriminalized, it means all those people retrospectively who have been convicted of cannabis weed cases should have their convictions overturned and, and their release. Is that is that the argument here? That is the that is the argument and the hopes. Um, but so far in every state that it has been legalized. Um, no decriminalization has happened. How, how does one work and not the other? That is the question of the universe in America right now. Because how do you say it's legal in California, Oregon, Nevada, I think South Dakota just passed, Mississippi, like it's legal in all of these states, but in none of that legislation did they make room for the expungement or release of people serving time. But does that mean if I'm in Nevada and I've got a pocket full of weed and I'm stopped by the police and they find the weed, I can still be charged with possession of cannabis, can I? No, they've just legalized it. So because it's legalized, it means I can have as much as I want on my possession and sell it? They Well, no, they have restrictions on selling it. So you can't sell it unless... You have gone through, you know, all of the hoops of of that. So you can't sell it, but you can have up to certain amounts for personal use. You can smoke it in public now. You can um, consume it, you know, in public. And I don't know. I think every state has like different amounts, but you can have like up to an ounce or something on you. You can grow up to like two or three plants in your backyard. Like every state has, you know, their restrictions um, are different. Um, but for the most part, you won't be criminalized for it, except if you've already been criminalized and those people have been ignored. And you're saying that's not fair. I mean, let's play devil's advocate here. If you've committed a crime when it was a crime and you go to prison, you serve your time. And then if they legalize that crime um, whilst you're in prison, should you really be released because you broke the law at the time there was a law? I think the argument is it should have never been a law. I think the argument is that if you have decided to legalize marijuana, then you've also admitted that marijuana is not a harm. It is not a harmful substance. It's a plant and you've accepted sort of, you've accepted, especially in the states who have legalized medicinally first, you've accepted that it's a plant that has healing attributes, right? And so if you're going to accept that, then you also need to accept that this should not have been a crime in the first place. You met up with the Last Prisoners Project and become an advocate, um, a poster girl, if you like, for their cause. Mm -hmm. How did that change your life and what did that lead on to? 
in so many ways, just emotionally, it changed and shifted the way that I viewed myself. Um, and that has really helped. And then uh, just career wise, like it led to my position at Vertosa, which, you know, led to me being able to buy my first my first home. It has led to many speaking engagements and it has opened the legal cannabis industry up for me. Um, And for that, I'm just like extremely, extremely grateful because let's be honest, coming out of prison, I never intended on speaking about the cannabis industry, talking about it, touching it, smelling. I was like, no, thank you. But I don't, I don't know what it's like at home for you, but for us, you drive down the highway, it's every other billboard. They're delivering cannabis to your door. Like you, there's an app where I can order up joints or edibles and it can be delivered to my front door and, and that's on the billboards. And so um, as much as I intended to avoid the industry, it's a slap in the face every time I walk out my door. Um, and so Last Prisoner Project has you know, uh, offered me a leg in. And so that hopefully once I'm off probation, I'm able to really engage in the legal industry and profit from it as I feel like I deserve. So are you going to become a weed dealer then? I don't know if I'll be a weed dealer just because I've just never been a salesperson. (laughs) Like, um, and retail has never been my thing, but there's so, this industry has grown so dramatically in this country that there are law firms specifically for this. There's marketing firms, PR firms, there's hospitals. Pre-COVID, I was hired um, at, at Vertosa as their community engagement manager. What's, what's Just tell me what Vertosa is. So Vertosa is an infusion technology company. They basically turn cannabis oil into a water-soluble solution. So now you can make beverages, edibles, uh, tinctures, creams, um, anything that has water as its base. Um, they can create an emulsion that spreads evenly. So prior to this technology, if you had an edible, most likely someone just dropped oil into their recipe and mixed it. But as we all know, oil doesn't mix with water. And so you could take a bite of that brownie and maybe have the whole oil clump and or take a bite and had not received any of it, which would lead to eating more. And now you're, you know, you're stoned beyond measure. Um, and so they, with their technology, have created a way to evenly disperse uh, the dosage. So you know what every bite or every sip is. And they're, they brought me on as a community engagement manager because there's cannabis conventions. Like you have no idea how many cannabis conventions are happening a year, at least twice a month across the country. And cannabis uh, businesses from across the country are participating and they needed someone to manage that. And that's exactly what I did at the hotels and hospitality. And so when I say that, you know, I intend to be in the industry, I don't really intend to open a dispensary, although if the opportunity came, I, I definitely wouldn't deny it, I would examine it. But um, I do intend to build my career in this industry as a as an events coordinator. And, and Vitosa and, and other organizations, are they giving 
other people like you a, a second chance, if you like, a second chance at using your experience or, or that negative in your life where you were criminalized? Are they giving you a chance? Is that how you saw it? Um, I saw it as them giving me a chance. Um, I'm not sure that the industry has opened up enough to give everyone a chance. I I am not naive to the fact that, you know, my resume, my appearance, all of that helps me get in the door. Um, and, and not everyone, you know, has that. And so uh, last person a project and they've onboarded me as the re-entry coordinator. We are working to hopefully bridge the gap between those who are recently released and into the legal industry. And that's purely to do with the weed, the cannabis industry. Yes. So people getting released from prison who have convictions for cannabis, you'll be working with those guys and girls. Yes, yes, yes. What does second chance mean to you, Evelyn? Still figuring it out. Um, two years ago, second chance just meant freedom. Second chance just meant coming home. And, and for me, it was, you know, a second chance to do this thing called life again, correctly. But then I got fired. And so uh, that, you know, and then it was like, oh, I don't have a second chance. And now almost two years later, um, second chance for me is more of an emotional internal thing. Having a second chance to sort of rewrite my life, rebuild again, that's that's my second chance, right? I'm 30. I think yeah, I'm 35. <laughs> COVID messed that up. You miss a birthday and I'm like, I don't even know. Like, <laughs> um, and, and so I am having a second chance right now to really uh, be the driver of my own life, so to say. Um, I was definitely a passenger for a while and just sort of going where I was led um, and now really stepping into the leadership role of my life is my second chance. And do you think the stigma of your conviction being an ex-felon will make it difficult for you in that environment? Not if I'm in the cannabis industry, <laughs> which is why I think I'm here to stay. I don't intend to go back to the hospitality like that was my intentions you know leaving college and now I, I always wish that whoever googled my name at the Omni would google it again because the narrative has changed when you googled it then there was that one article from ICE that completely over exaggerated my involvement it was you know 18 willers of cannabis and a complete exaggeration and it was published I think post or, or pre-conviction um, but if you google my name now it is flooded with you know speaking engagements and interviews and just highlighting the injustice of it all um, and why do you do that why do you go on these platforms and talk at conferences if it's not to promote the legalized companies who who, who deal in weed why, why do you go up there why do you offer your time uh, get paid for it however but why do you talk about your past it is validating it's it every time including this time speaking with you it re, it almost removes a day that I spent in prison right because for every day that I was in prison it was you know you're terrible especially 
the way that the guards treat you, the way that, you know, prosecutors uh, interact with you, everything, all of the interactions. And I mean, and we could talk about some very dehumanizing interactions in prison between myself and the guards. All of those interactions sort of point at you. You're wrong. You did something wrong. You're a criminal. You deserve to be here. No one's opening the doors for you. Go to your cell. Like all of that, they are extremely successful at it. And so every time that I'm able to sit down and and share my side of the story and share my experience, um, I do it in hopes of two things, hoping that the, the people in charge, the lawmakers would hear it. And so it validates that experience for me when I when I'm able to share my story. It lets me know that someone is listening, someone cares, someone's concerned, um, and you're not as bad as the prison would have you believe you are. And what do you or why do you think that those who still remain in prison, the 40,000 you talked about um, for cannabis offences, why do you think they deserve a second chance in terms of being released for the crimes that they committed? I would say, can you imagine being in prison for cannabis and then turning on the news and watching people say that they just made a million dollars in six months for cannabis? So I think that they need to, they deserve to be released just off of that premise alone. I read a meme recently and it was like, you can't send me to jail for paying my bills from cannabis profits, but then pay the bills of the state from cannabis profits because the state is profiting extremely from the taxes that they receive from these businesses. So I go to jail for paying my bills for cannabis profits. And then the state turns around and pays their bills with cannabis profits. None of them are going to jail. So for me, it's like a no brainer. I asked you at the beginning and I'll ask you at the end. How do you describe yourself? Because now I've heard your story. There is much more to you than this woman who went to prison, who was, I don't know, duped or involved in a relationship that led you to do something you wouldn't have otherwise done, um, whatever your motive, whatever his motive But there's much more to you. And that's what I love about this. When I've listened to your story, not only have you overcome the adversity of prison, dealing with prison, rebuilding your relationship with your daughter. You're a mother. You're also an entrepreneur. You're also somebody who's gone on to become a public speaker. You're also somebody who worked for a private company that is doing what you ended up going in prison for. And you're still going strong. So At the beginning, when I asked you who you thought you were, it was quite short. It was quite brief. By the end, there's much more to you. So if you were to sum up yourself once more, Evelyn, and I'm talking about the future, who is the future, Evelyn? I told you I never cry. Now you've got emotions coming out of me. Um, The future, Evelyn, and I I hope for this with, with all of my heart, that the future, Evelyn, is um, again the leader of her life and building generational wealth in the cannabis industry for my child and generations to come and just I don't have a better word and I wish I did because this is going to sound really corny but a boss at all things related to my life 
like taking everything, owning everything, being intentional about every step that I take, every word out of my mouth. My hopes, prayers for the future, Evelyn, is that I'm just extremely intentional with the with the remaining years that I have here on Earth. Do you find that your life experiences are more challenging because you're a woman in the space that you work in? Yes. That is in any space though, right? So I, I don't take away you like you say, like women in general in, in any of their spaces. I do think it's why I ended up in prison, right? Like women typically are in prison because of involvement through some man. It is never really the woman. It is it happens, but it is rare. Um, so I definitely have been a woman as a disadvantage, but on the flip side, I am um I'm an attractive woman. And so that opens doors that may not, you know, so it, it's, it, for me, it's really how, how do you, how do you play it? I often get to speak about my experience in prison. It is not often that I get to examine myself. And so. Um, and is that what you feel has happened here? You've, yeah. you've, you've reflected. I did sense, as I always do, a little moment of emotion. But, but that's a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing for you to look back and reflect on who you are, where you've come from, because it's not easy. It can't be easy because of all the reasons we've talked. No, it is, it is a great feeling to, uh, in the midst of telling this story, also reflect on who I was and who I'm hoping to be. And like, even when you just mentioned, you know, you're a woman, um, I think going into the conviction, I was not a woman. I was, uh, I was 24, so I wasn't a child, but I definitely wasn't a woman. And so these are all things that you've brought out that I'll be able to reflect on, you know, probably for the rest of the, at least the rest of the, the week or month about um, I am not that person anymore. I would not have made those decisions as the woman that I am now. Um, and where am I going? Where am I going? Where is the rest of my life going? And so I appreciate being able to have this conversation with you. No one else is asking these questions. That makes me feel good. Look, you, you, you have a great day and thank you so much um, for, for talking to me and sharing your story with my listeners. I appreciate it, Evelyn. I appreciate you. Thank you. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. You can listen to previous episodes 1 to 16 by clicking on any of the pod players. Sound was produced by Audio Avalanche. Original music by J-Row Productions. Design work by Studio Minerva. And myself, Raphael Rowe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.